Welcome to Dallas. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. Okay, last week, I started with this thought about how a lot of the, uh, some of the science community, particularly those who describe themselves as atheists, uh, subscribe to this thinking. It's, it's very common in, in the science world, and Stephen Hawking made this very popular in his 2010 book, The Grand Design, that if you can observe a law, a law of nature, a physical law, if you can observe it, if you can observe the effects of it, then that suggests that that law is able to create, and this is how the design of the universe is described, that the physical laws themselves must have been what created the universe. And so I referred to, I just referenced quickly, the brilliant John Lennox, who's the mathematician at Oxford University, has just in recent years pushed back and said, that's illogical science. That does not make sense. Physical, natural laws are, they're not creative. They're descriptive. They describe aspects of life. They don't create life. And so we relayed that, we overlaid that to a conversation in Mark 12, where a Pharisee, a very smart Brilliant religious leader, a Pharisee of the day, makes the same assumption about the source of life regarding laws. He's not thinking of physical laws or nature laws. He's talking about spiritual laws. And so he says to Jesus, wow, you've gained a lot of popularity. And now that I'm listening to you, I'm pretty impressed, Jesus. I don't know where you get this teaching, but with all your brilliance, I've got a question for you. I want to know. How does one attain eternal life? How can we be sure? How can I live forever? So what is the greatest law? In the law of Moses, all the laws that governed ancient Israel, which is the most important one that will give me, that will ensure me eternal life? And Jesus understands it's not the laws that create life. It's just like in nature. It's just like in science. It's not the spiritual law that gives you life. If you just do the one and you do it consistently, or you show up enough times, or you kind of appease God, well, then he kind of lets you in. And so Jesus upends this. He actually turns things completely upside down. That's a lot of the point of the book of Mark. And he does so by saying, here's how. You want to know the law? You want one? Love the Lord your God with every part of your being, all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. You want to know how to attain life forever? Like walk in life, really be connected to God? Give God your whole life. Pursue him with your whole heart, all your mind, all your energy and strength. See, what Jesus is doing is he's not saying, if you feed the cows every Tuesday, if you go to the synagogue, if you show up at church, if you bow and pray the number of times you should, well, then you'll have, Jesus says, you you have life by going to the source of life. If you pursue me, the creator, your creator, the one who has purpose for you, if you pursue me with all of your being, that, that is how you step into life. That is how you have life forever. And so this fares, and and Jesus adds to the script. He says, oh, and one more thing. Also, you must love your neighbor as yourself. You must take the love 
the, the heart-changing experience of giving God your whole life and allow that love to spill over to the people around you. You must love your neighbor the way you care for yourself. You do these two things, you'll have life. Because it's not about doing them. It's about pursuing the source of life and then sharing his life with others. So the Pharisee says, Jesus, I can't argue with you. This makes perfect sense. I, 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 think, you're, I think you're right you must love God with every part of your being, and you must love your neighbor. And Jesus' response is, well, if you think I'm right, then you're not far. Mark 12, 34. You're not far. I've come close. It's not me who's creating distance. You're not far if you agree and acknowledge that the source of life is who we pursue. Not laws, not rules, not getting all the rules just right, not trying to live perfectly, not trying to be a good person. Pursuing the one who holds your purpose, who designed you, and pursuing him with everything. All right, so a lot of you know about the Washington West Film Festival. This is a, a, a film festival I started uh, about 12 years ago. Uh, quite a few of you are involved. Some of you lead f some of the film festival teams. And it primarily screens in Tyson's and Reston, mostly Reston Town Center. And I, I believe I've demonstrated well that I don't name drop. I, I actually don't like it when people name drop. Occasionally we have a celebrity. I'd say we probably have a celebrity on average once a year. Um, that's my preface for I'm about to name drop, right? Okay, so in 2014, we were looking ahead, a year ahead. We, we usually screen one anniversary film a movie that was really popular or widely known that's having its 10th anniversary or 20th anniversary. And we noticed in 2014, wow, next year, 2015, is the 30th anniversary of Back to the Future, one of my favorite, favorite movies of all time and, and from the mid-'80s, like right when I was falling in love with movies, Back to the Future came out. And so we, were, we decided to try to put together a 30th anniversary event and emailed Universal Pictures, in LA, and they actually said, we're interested in this idea, and I flew out to meet with them. And we designed this idea, this concept. The problem was we couldn't get anybody, we couldn't get a cast member to commit. So we had this idea design. We're gonna invite DeLoreans from all over the country, we're gonna have a red carpet, we're gonna, but press wasn't interested, nobody was really, the, the, there was just no momentum because we didn't have anybody from the cast, and finally, we get a phone call one day from Christopher Lloyd's manager or agent and said, he's interested, he'd like to come. This sounds like a really great, and when he committed, when he told us he was gonna come, when we heard that Christopher Lloyd was arriving at Dulles Airport for our event, it changed everything. I mean, I've, I've rarely seen anything like this with my own eyes and been part of the organization of, you know, just even been able to witness. Press flew in from Paris from London, USA Today, which is how Doc proved to Marty that he had come from the future, was with USA Today. USA Today wants to get involved. They printed a special edition newspaper. They did a contest all over the world in their newspaper. Two friends from Idaho won the contest, and USA Today flew them to our festival to walk the red carpet. With that. I mean, it was just crazy. NBC Nightly News came once, then they came back two days later to cover. It was bedlam, and it so fixed in my mind and j j just my perspective what happens 
with the potential of what could happen when one person says, I'm coming. I'm going to be there. And this is the central theme of Mark, Mark's gospel. And I, I'm, I'm devoting this message really to this, this new virtual group that's going to start for eight weeks, that Jackie Hoddle and Amanda Gallon are going to be leading on Tuesday nights. I strongly encourage you. I mean, it's eight weeks. The weather's cold. It's winter. This is virtual. Maybe take... An hour, hour and 15 minutes on Tuesday nights to dive in a little more. We're going to start at the beginning of Mark, and we're going to see that his theme is the world changes when one person decides to come close. In fact, John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. He is dictating Peter's own experience with Jesus. So Peter is in a Roman jail. He will never leave Rome. He, his, he will lose his life for his faith. And before his death, he wants his experience, his eyewitness story recorded, his story of Jesus recorded. And so his traveling companion, John Mark, records Peter's experience, and it becomes the gospel of Mark. And Mark tells us at the very beginning that Jesus' focus, the, 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 the real drive of the book of Mark is it's time. It's time. It's time for God's kingdom, God's realm, everything that belongs to God, God's plans, his perspective, his love, his power, his ability, his ability to even push back death. It's time for that kingdom, that realm to come close to our broken realm, to broken humanity. Mark 1.1 begins, the beginning of the good news, which is the word gospel, the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. We go a little further to verse 14. After John was put in prison, John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this good news. Last week, we, looked at, we jumped ahead to, to chapter 12, where Jesus says, if you believe, if you agree with me, that the two greatest Values for humans is to love God with all your being and then allow the experience of that pursuit of God to spill over and to affect and infect the people around you. Love your neighbors yourself. If you agree, then you're not far. I've come into this world. I've approached you. I'm closer than you think. The question is, do you believe this is how to attain life? If you do, then you're not far. And so we go back to the beginning of the story. We go, we go back to Mark's account. And Jesus' first words is, the time has come. The realm of God and all that belongs to him, the way he perceives the world, his passion for humans. It's here. It's come near. Now this word, repent. So repent and believe this good news. I grew up in church. And this word, it used to sound to me like, oh, make yourself more religious and start being a better person. That's, that's kind of how I understood repent. Jesus just wants us to get in line. and We're supposed to be good church people. That's not what the word repent means. And a lot of us, I think, have that paradigm. Maybe we've just heard it in culture, and that's just what it sounds like to us. Repent literally means to change course. It's the, it's the language used in marine navigation, when a, a ship is moving directly into a storm, like stormy seas, 
and it repositions, it navigates away from the storm towards smooth waters. That is actually literally the idea of repent, repenting. Change course. Stop believing the things that hold you back. Stop looking at the limitations. Stop believing in your own power, your own control. Change course because God's kingdom has come and now life is available. So in the beginning of Mark, I'm going to borrow from the end of Mark 1 and we're going to go into Mark chapter 2. I want to look at three examples today of where Jesus is describing for us. Peter is dictating to John Mark who's recording this. And John Mark is describing for us three ways that in the very beginning, Mark 1 and Mark 2, Jesus' close arrival, bringing God's kingdom, upends the way the world thinks. This is a paradigm-shifting, mind-shifting, mind-bending reality for you and me when God chooses to come close as he's done with Jesus' arrival. And I'm going to just give you the three. These are the three we're going to talk about this morning. First of all, Jesus actually shows us that in some cases he ignores, he straight up ignores religious protocols. I think a lot of us struggle with this. And I don't know, I don't know what maybe your obstacle or obstacles have been in feeling close, in moving close to God. Maybe one of your obstacles has been religious protocols that just seem to, they just don't, they seem to, push you further from God. I'm going to just pick on Catholics here for a little bit, for just a moment, and then I'm going to pick on us, me, Protestants. I'm just going to put us all in the same boat here. I have known so many couples, I've, I've probably performed, somebody asked me recently, I think maybe 90 or more weddings. And I, I've just seen this experience where a couple's getting, they actually love Jesus. They're committed in their faith. She's Catholic, he's Protestant, or vice versa. And the Catholic Church won't perform the wedding. They will not host the wedding because the other spouse is Protestant. Now, I am. I'm, I'm calling out a group here, and I'm about to call, call, call us Protestants out here in just a moment. There, there's a moment, and, and they won't give communion. You, you both follow Jesus, but because you're, you're part of the Protestant Church, we won't serve communion, so you can't get married you know, that kind of, it, it, I've seen couples just recoil, like, what? Well, forget it. And when they say forget it, it's like, forget God, forget the church. Protestants are really good at this. I mean, we really are. We're good at adding our own protocols and rules, and it's just been, it's just religious-minded people who are not actually attached to what Jesus is driving us toward, we have the tendency to create rules. Maybe to control the way people think. Maybe to control their behavior. I think Protestants, you know, one that I could pull out, and I could pull out many, is just in history. Somebody goes through a divorce. You don't even know the circumstances, and it could even be years ago. That divorce prevents, fortunately not here at Dulles, because we pay attention to the New Testament and the heart of Jesus. But in, it's sadly, in church history, divorces sometimes have prevented such sweet people who love God, their lives are devoted to him, but they can't serve in the church. And see, there's something about this, these protocols, and maybe, maybe you've experienced one. I've experienced them where I just want to say, you've got to be kidding me. The second thing we're going to look at here this morning that we see in Mark 1 and Mark chapter 2 
with God's arrival, God coming close to us and what it changes, how it turns everything upside down, is that Jesus claims to have the power to forgive human selfishness, human attempt at control. This is sin. Jesus claims to have the authority to forgive what breaks us, what has broken you and me. Maybe this has been part of your obstacle. Maybe there's something in your life. Maybe there's something recent or from long ago. And you accept the idea, God loves people. He just, he has to. He, he generally loves me. He loves me from a distance. But this thing, this nagging, haunting thing prevents me from getting too close to him. I can't because of what I've done or because of where I've been or because of that decision I made. If Peter were here, he would say, I'm so glad you're reading my story that John Mark recorded. Keep reading. And then the third is how uncomfortably comfortable Jesus is with outsiders and sinners. I mean, he is so comfortable with people outside of faith. It makes the religious people super nervous, and then they start threatening him. Uh, you may just think, I'll never measure up to like a really good, squeaky clean church person. I just, I just can't. Peter would say, well, I'm writing my story about Jesus for you. Keep reading. So let's look at the first. The first mind-bending reality of God coming close. Closer maybe than you've ever conceived a man with leprosy approaches Jesus. So in chapter 1, Jesus is healing people. And he has this apparent authority. It's clear he has power over the human body and diseases. And so he's already gaining fame from town to town. And crowds are growing. Already by the end of Mark 1, Mark chapter 1, we see crowds just forming in town to town. Because he's healing people. And then we get closer to the end of chapter 1. And a man with leprosy approaches him. Now in ancient times... Leprosy was not diagnosed the way it would be today in our world. Anyone with even, even, even a skin rash, it freaked people out. They would immediately think, leprosy. And the reaction, this is so crazy to think, it's just hard for us to conceive, but in our world, with all of our medicine and in the 21st century and our science, it's just hard to imagine a place where you remove someone with leprosy or even a skin condition would be removed from society and placed in a colony or in a building, kind of a safe house, and you could not participate in society. And it was said about lepers that they hung between life and death. They weren't able to actually die. It didn't kill them. But they weren't able to participate in life. This was the story, this was the status of lepers. And you know, you and I would have an incredibly hard time visualizing living that way until COVID. COVID gives us a little, maybe just a little inkling or, or experience of this idea of, oh my gosh, they may, have, they may be contaminated. And just what we think, you know, you can't come to work, you can't. You know, just we, we freaked out and maybe for good measure, for, for good reason at times, like... If you were a leper or you even had just something on your skin that looked like there was something that shouldn't be there, you were ostracized. Okay, that's the context here. 
And no one, if you had leprosy, no one ever, ever came close to touching you. And so Peter is telling his story and experience with Jesus, and John Mark is recording it, and they want this to be one of the first ideas for you and me in the story of Jesus of what happens, how the world changes, how religion just gets turned completely on its head because of God coming close. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, saying to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. How is that for a statement of faith? This is powerful. I know you can. I know you have the ability. I've heard the stories already. You have the authority. You have the power. If you choose to make me well, you could. Jesus was indignant. I remember as a kid growing up in church, I'd hear this story from time to time, and Jesus is indignant. It's, as, a, as a kid, I thought Jesus was frustrated with this man, like approaching him, dropping to his knees. Jesus isn't indignant at the man. Jesus is indignant. You know, indignant is showing anger at an injustice in how someone's being treated. Jesus is indignant that this man has been excluded from society. Jesus ignores certain religious and political protocols. Jesus intentionally ignores religious correctness, political correctness, in order to engage somebody right where they are in life, regardless of what's happening. Jesus reached out his hand, we're told in the story, and you have to be thinking that Peter Peter telling his story to John Mark, who's recording this. Peter's got to be telling back, thinking back to that moment where Jesus stretches out his hand. Like, no, 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 Jesus, you can't. You can't touch him. You can't actually touch him. This man has leprosy. Pronounce a blessing over him. Jesus, heal him from across the room. Just breathe. We know how COVID works. Breathe across the room so your breath can kind of fall on him. Whatever you do, Jesus, don't touch him. Because not only could that maybe affect you, but then we've got to travel all the way back to Jerusalem, to the temple, and we have to go through the religious ceremonial cleansing. And a priest has to be involved so that you can come back and continue doing good work. Your work of God's new kingdom. So just, please Jesus, just speak healing over him. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. This is so important, and I want to I credit Andy Stanley for this. Andy Stanley's a pastor in Atlanta. We're, we're partnered with his church in Atlanta. And four years ago, he did a study on Mark, and he made this point, that Jesus chose to meet needs while ignoring re, re, ritual, religious, political correctness. Jesus intentionally chose to ignore what was deemed correct in society in order to touch someone, their life, their hurt, their pain, to step intimately into the circumstance or the situation that the person was struggling with. This is what it looks like Mark is telling us when God's kingdom comes close. Some of us have grown up in church world and church life, and what we hear is the, the order of things. We must worship in the right order. We must appease God we, as long as we do the sacraments the right way. What really matters 
is that we position ourselves so fully committed to God's plan for us that we pursue him with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, that his love can permeate out of us into the lives of others, into their hurt, into their struggle, that we would relate our struggle to, to our neighbor's struggle. And see, religious people will react to that. Religious organizers will say, wait, 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 but you can't, you can't do that on a Tuesday. But wait, they don't go to church. That person's been seen with this other person. I think that person votes differently than we vote. God forbid. See, that's religious thinking. That's controlling the masses through just under the banner of God. And Jesus came to just turn that upside down. The second example we see here in the early pages of Mark. The second mind-bending reality of God coming close. This involves a man who's paralyzed. If you've been near church for any length of time at all, you probably are familiar with the story. A few days later, so here begins Mark chapter 2. When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers. Here we are again. This is a theme. The word crowd is used in every chapter of Mark except two. Crowds are just constantly around Jesus. They see his authority. They see this power. But see, Jesus is about to show them a different kind of authority, a whole different kind of power. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door where he was teaching. And he preached the word to them, to the crowd, those who could hear him. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, a friend, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus through the crowd, they went up and over and around. And we know this is somewhat of an affluent home because it had tiles. This is the only clue we have about this house. There's tiles on the roof, which in this day made it somewhat wealthier home. They start removing the tiles, making a hole in the roof. And they lower their friend on a mat through the, through the roof. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, now let me pause. We know what happens, right? And even if you aren't familiar with church or with the story, you can probably guess Jesus is going to heal him. That's where the story's going. This is kind of becoming predictable, Jesus. We, kinda, we, we know what's going to happen here. Can we just skip to the end? But Jesus throws a curveball into this. There's a twist, and Mark records Peter making sure that we understand this twist in the story. When Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now let me just interject. We don't hear this man respond this way in the story, but I think it's safe to assume. If you or I or this man, Lord, with all this work having been done, lowered through the roof of a house and a mat to get to Jesus. After all of this, I think if I'm the man and Jesus looks down at me and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. I'm I don't know if I'll have the boldness to push back on Jesus, but I'm probably thinking, Jesus, that's not why I'm here. I didn't come. My friends didn't lower me through the roof so that you could forgive my sins. I mean, thank you and all. You know, but... Uh, I have a condition here that I was hoping. That's the context. That's the tension in this story. This is stunning. This is blasphemy. What Jesus is offering here, what he's suggesting. 
<clears throat> no sacrifice has been made for the man's sins. They haven't traveled to the temple. There's not a priest involved in the cleansing of his sins. What in the world is Jesus doing? This is absurd if you were not just a religious leader in the day, if you just understand the way the system works. There's lots of rituals, and there's lots of penance, and there's lots of traveling to get to the right places for your sins, and the right priest who's been anointed has to... What is Jesus suggesting here? Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. We, they don't actually say this out loud. We know what they're thinking. Peter tells John Mark to record this. We know what they're thinking because Jesus calls it out of them. Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he says it. Why does this fellow, this is what they're thinking, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Can you imagine Jesus approaching you? And you're thinking of fear or you're thinking judgment on another person. You don't say it out loud and Jesus just says to you, why are you thinking this way, Brad? Why is that, why is that your thought? That's, not only is that eerie, that's just, whew. You got to be on your toes when Jesus comes close. He knows what's in your, in your head. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now, this isn't a trick question. It's not even difficult to answer. You and I would probably have an answer for this. If I say, hey, I've got a friend over here with a disability. There's a situation in their life. And Chris or Steve or Amanda, I want you to go over here. And I want you to say, which would be easier to say to the person? Your sins are forgiven or... Your body's healed. Go home completely whole. So some background. In ancient times, this was common not just among ancient uh, Israel and the Jewish people, but in a lot of even pagan cultures, there was this, this saying, sickness and sin. Sickness and sin. It was like a cliche. If someone has a disease, if someone was born with a disability, it's because of sin in their life or something their father did or something their mother did. Maybe even a grandparent, they have been punished with this ailment or this condition or a disability. This was very common thinking. And Jesus would later address this. Later in the Gospels, Jesus would say, no. No, by the way, I do not believe someone's sickness is because of sin in their life. Because of a behavior or a decision that they made. It's not how the world works. Jesus clarifies that in another context. What Jesus is doing here, remember, he's claiming out in the public, in front of a large crowd, the crowd was so large, the friends couldn't even get their, the man on the mat to him. He's claiming to have authority to wipe away, to cleanse away from us our selfishness, our distancing ourselves from God, sin, human brokenness, what actually has created the chasm between us and God, Jesus can erase it. Jesus can cleanse humans of sin. But I want you to know, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has authority. See, they've seen his authority, his power to heal. 
All through chapter 1, we see this. And the crowds are building, crowds are building. Now, Jesus is intentionally showing us a second remarkable trait or reality of God's kingdom coming close. He wants us to see that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and walk home. Now, in the ancient world, this is, you and I live this side of grace. We live on this side of the cross. We understand God's goodness and his nature is actually to forgive and has mercy. He's the God of second chances. But in the ancient world, this man is paralyzed because of someone's sin, because of his sin, something he's done, something he's thought. How could anyone substantiate? How could Jesus in this moment substantiate the claim to be able to forgive sin. There's only one way, especially in this world, in so many cultures of the ancient world, by physically reversing the consequence of sin, or so people would think. If you can take away the ailment, the physical condition, the disability, if you can do that, this is a game changer. This changes everything. This person, if they have that power, then they have the power to tell me that I'm clean. I can approach God. He wants a relationship with me. And see, in our world, when we say just that guilt and that shame that whispers, and sometimes it's not a whisper, it's just this loud, pervasive voice. Yeah, that God knows. He knows that thing, Brad. He sees. Maybe years ago, and maybe it was a week ago, Jesus is upending even your paradigm. That we, can't, we can only get so close to God because of things that we've done or mistakes we've made. It's just not how it works. Jesus says it's not how it works. It's not how it works for people that I love, my children, for humans. The man got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them. In full view of them all. And that, by the way, that language matters. Peter dictates to John Mark in full view of them all. And John writes down in full view of them all. You know what this is? In, in, in our day, it would be called really good, smart journalism. Before computers, before typewriters, before press offices. This is Peter's way of saying, you can fact check me. There were a lot of people there. We all saw this authority. This man has authority to forgive our wrongs and our ugly because he just so easily said, ailment be gone. You ever wonder if God can or would forgive you? We know the religious language. We know the cliches. God forgives. He loves. But do you ever struggle with this internally? Maybe you've never said it out loud. Do you? Is there something? Maybe there's a habit or there's a series of some things in your life where you just, you just get hung up on that thing. But there's that thing. You understand that Jesus died for the sins of mankind. You accept that reality. But do you ever wonder, do you ever wonder if he looks at you through the lens of that thing, that ugly? This is why Mark 1 and Mark 2 and why the Tuesday night study is so important that we dive into this and understanding God's story more and his words to us. Because Jesus is going way out of his way to tell us that's not actually how the world is supposed to work. It doesn't matter what you've done. 
It doesn't matter, that thing. I love you. You're my son. He'll later give us the prodigal son. He'll later forgive Peter. Peter, who's telling this story to John Mark. Peter would deny knowing Jesus in Jesus' most lonely, hurtful hour when his crucifixion has begun. Peter will deny even being associated with him. And Jesus would so quickly and lovingly forgive Peter. Say, Peter, forget it, forget it. You're going to grow from this. I want you close to me. You're my son. I've called you. I have a purpose for you. The third mind bender in God coming close to humanity. Peter gives us one more example here at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus was uncomfortably comfortable with outsiders and sinners. I mean, it's hard for us. We, we know he loved people, and he walked, oh, the woman at the well, he loved her. doesn't matter that she's just in this crazy lifestyle. She's got five men, and Jesus knows this, and he loves her, and he wants her to be free of this horrible, maybe she's been what we would call trafficked. Just this, we see Jesus just, he just loves everybody, but he is associating with prostitutes, he has all kinds of the bottom of the status cesspool in Galilee following him. He's eating with them. Once again, Mark chapter 2, verse 13, once again, Jesus went out by the, by the lake. And we know uh, James and John, Peter and Andrew are with Jesus. So I, I picture the four of them and Jesus and maybe another couple of disciples walking on the sea of Galilee, walking on the, the, the shoreline. They began, uh, he began teaching them, another crowd. As they walked along on the shoreline of Galilee, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Okay. Tax collectors were basically crooks. Today we would be thinking of Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, you're, you're kind of in that realm. A tax collector was a Jewish person who betrayed his own people to do the tax collecting and in the Roman Empire and even local governments, they didn't supervise you. They didn't care if you overtaxed. As long as the government gets their share, they don't care what you overcharge, what your surcharge is. And I mean they took advantage. Tax collectors were oppressive to the people. And they were, in proxy, they were defended by the government. And so the Israelites hated these Jewish people who really had just sold them out. For their own personal wealth. No one respected a tax collector. And here, Jesus and four of his disciples we know approach Levi sitting in the tax collector's booth. And Jesus says to Levi. Now, what they're probably thinking, what Peter and Andrew and James or John are probably thinking is, oh my gosh, this is going to go down. This is going to be ugly. We're going to see Jesus go into a throwdown mode here. He's, he's going to defend all the people of Israel and tell this guy, be cast out of here or whatever. I don't know what, it, I don't know what exactly they're thinking, but they're, they're not thinking Jesus is going to say, Levi, follow me. Just as he had said to the fishermen. Follow me, Jesus said, and Levi got up and followed him. Jesus was so outrageously comfortable with outsiders and sinners. This is a conundrum 
for the already following Jesus disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, like they've got to, they probably have a decision to make. Like you've got to be kidding me. He's inviting, this is totally upside down. We're devoted to following Jesus. We're going to try to serve him and help him. This makes no sense. This doesn't fit any paradigm that we understand. Levi is going to join us. I even wonder if they considered parting ways with Jesus. Like, all right, Jesus, there's two groups of us now. We'll go this way. You and Levi, let's see how, let's see how successful you are with Levi. The crowds are going to dissipate quickly. And I love this next part. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him, many outsiders, many sinners. Are, they're so compelled by Jesus, they're following him. When the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why? How can he claim to be from God? How can he be announcing that God's kingdom has come close? He's doing the opposite. He's tainting our people. This isn't bringing God's kingdom close. He's spending time with sinners, with tax collectors. Why does he eat with them? It's not just hanging out with them. It's not just being nice to them on the street. He's eating with them. In ancient Israel, I mean, we have, you know, when you're at dinner at a restaurant with friends, you're, that's, a, that's a sign, an invitation into community. That's close community. It's next level in ancient Israel. I mean, when you eat with someone, you are, it's, it's, there's language that suggests you're almost extending like your family to them. Like you're, you're in my home, you're at dinner with me. We're actually in deep community together. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, that's in quotes, self-righteous people. I've come to call sinners. Have you ever thought, is maybe your obstacle in closeness to God? Because remember, he's already come close. The question is, do we allow it? Do we allow Jesus to close that gap between me and him, between you and him? Have you ever struggled to think, man, there's just people that, the, the people who play music up on stage, they're just squeaky clean. There's people who, they're just so nice at the front door. They're church people. I'm just never going to be a church person that just measures up like those people. Peter is telling John Mark to record this so that we would understand this is exactly who God's kingdom is for. He's come close to people like us who think we'll never measure up. We're the kind of people Jesus wants to be with. That he wants to befriend. He wants to erase our past and our mistakes and our regrets. He wants to heal us from our own selfish choosing, our need for control. And he wants to breathe purpose into us. Like our reason for living. Why he created you. I don't know what your obstacle maybe has been. I don't know what maybe, maybe religion itself or your church growing up just kind of communicated, man, God seems far from me. God seems angry at this world. But when we look at the story of Jesus, we see so much the opposite. Maybe your obstacle is protocols that the religion and organized religion and churches have put in the way or something in your own life or a decision you've made. Or maybe it's just kind of this perception that I've got to be that kind of person 
Jesus dismantles all of this. In the first two chapters of the first gospel, the first recorded gospel, I'm going to invite our band to come. They're going to close our time together, our morning here together. And as they come, I just I, I want to challenge you again to commit to this series. We're all busy. We live busy lives. We have work. We have family, and there's sports and all these. I'm telling you, you're not communicating anything more profound to your children at certain ages than to say, you know what, Sunday morning, we're gathering with our church because we're learning this new way. We're learning what the world looks like when God comes close. And we're learning what it looks like if we participate in this plan. And I'm just calling you, just let those, if you're going to the, you know, I joked about the Bahamas. If you're going to the Bahamas next weekend, uh, would you take me with you? <laughs> but seriously, have a great time. But these things that so easily distract and get in our way, commit to this series. I've given this my heart and my passion, and you should too. Because this isn't about me. This is about us accepting this beautiful, amazing, remarkable, upside-down truth that God has come close. And he's throwing out the correctness and the protocols and he can forgive and make clean anything from your past. Would you consider on our website, our mobile app, Amanda, uh, maybe Jackie and Amanda both um, will be in the lobby. I know Amanda said she'd be in the lobby today. If you don't know who Amanda or Jackie are, just ask. Ask somebody um, just to answer questions about the Tuesday night study. You will not regret it. You will not regret taking an hour maybe a little more than an hour each week for eight weeks to just understand the story of Jesus more. We're collecting chili kits. A chili kit fits in a grocery bag. You can get almost all of it on one or two aisles of a grocery store for neighbors here in the Dulles area who may go a weekend, and we're, we just designate Super Bowl Sunday. While the world is feasting, we have neighbors that may go without a meal that evening. And we're asking you to contribute. We're asking you to be part of helping feed our neighbor, to help love our neighbor. God, I thank you for our church, and I thank you that you have come close in all that comes with it. This is such an attractive, beautiful view of the world. And we're not making this up. This isn't something that we just are trying to beautify because it makes us feel better. This is the story of you coming to our world. So Jesus, may we let go of our mistakes and regrets and maybe let go of our paradigms and expectations and what we think religion looks like and may we lean into you and pursue you with more of our heart all of our heart all of our mental energy all of our strength and god may the result be that we actually affect the people around us as encouragers as good listeners as people who can be interruptible who can empathize with mistakes or pain. May we love our neighbor well because of your growing kingdom inside of each one of us. Amen.